Hello, and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another solo deep dive episode. Today, I'm going to talk with you about situationships. <laughs> a situationship is a relatively new term in terms of our common parlance, and it's a term that gets used in a multitude of ways. So there's like no official definition of what does and doesn't qualify as a situationship. With that said, Based on my observations over the years, people typically use this term to capture a relationship status that involves one, sexual intimacy, two, perhaps sexual exclusivity, three, likely emotional intimacy, at least some amount, and four, no commitment, no promise, no label, no definition that we are a couple. The goal of today's show is to offer you, first of all, a context for thinking about situationships. Second of all, a framework for assessing how well your situationship is working for you. And third, guidance on some next steps that you might want or need to take based on your assessment. So I'm going to bring the tools of relational self-awareness to help you understand how you feel about a situationship, about your situationship. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about my location and my bias. I want to really like locate myself before I talk you through all of my <laughs> hot takes and impressions. So as you know, I am someone who has spent very little of my life in the dating world but a lot of my life as an ally to and cheerleader for those who are in the dating world, including as a clinician educator, somebody who spends lots of time training therapists to help them work thoughtfully and respectfully and in nuanced ways with people who are single, dating, and single again. So I am rock solid in my position as someone who is here to celebrate whatever relationship architecture allows you to thrive. I also am rock solid in my knowledge that every single choice, every relationship choice, every relationship architecture has consequences. And I'm devoted to looking with you at the risks and the benefits that accompany whatever choice you make. And then my socialization. So 
I have been socialized in this culture that elevates marriage as the most recognized, the most accepted relationship status. You've been socialized in that culture as well. It's inescapable. I also have been socialized by my experience of having been married for almost 25 years, and I have been reaping the benefits, the social and legal benefits as a card-carrying member of that institution, the institution of marriage. And I've been socialized by my experience of being happy in my marriage. I feel secure. I feel cared for. I feel like I have freedom to ask for what I need and to pursue what matters to me. And I've been socialized within a professional field that to this very day is called marriage and family therapy, not even couple and family therapy, and certainly not intimate partnership and family therapy or situationship and family therapy. So I want to own my bias and my location and my socialization as somebody who spent many, many, many years working as a therapist and an educator with lots of people at all stages of development, but especially young people. And my experiences have been predominantly that situationships tend to be more stressful than they are beneficial, more a liability than an asset. And this is certainly not the case in every situation, but I want to make sure that I name that right at the start of this episode, because I have a hunch that you may hear my bias or my experience, even if it's, you know, anecdotal, though some of my experience is backed up by research, but you may hear that coming through in this, in this episode, maybe in clear ways, but maybe also in some sneaky ways or even some ways that are not quite conscious to me as I talk to you about situationships. And it may very well be the case that I've seen people suffer within a situationship because situationships may be stressful precisely due to the way we've been socialized, right? If we've all been socialized with this notion that a clear and a monogamous commitment to each other is the good, right, normal way of doing it, then therefore, because a situationship deviates from that standard, that reason alone creates anxiety, creates suffering. In other words, it may be the case that the suffering is built in because of our social conditioning. But it may also be the case that situationships tend to be stressful simply because their structure is inherently unstable. We know that boundaries, definitions, and structure tend to reduce anxiety in relationships, in work settings, in task completion, right? We like our brains, like boundaries, definitions, and structure. We also know that ambiguity and uncertainty and unpredictability tend to increase anxiety. So it may be that that's the root, really, of the suffering. So obviously, though, it's also the case that high structure in and of itself does not prevent suffering, right? Exhibit A is the many, many, many unhappy marriages that there are in the world, right? That's high structure. And it is, you know, there's lots of people who suffer even within that very high structure situation. But I think that the ability to thrive and feel happy in a low structure, high ambiguity situation, like a situationship, 
that's a particular kind of superpower indeed. And one that I want to, um, you know, I just want to like sit with you in some of that complexity. As we often do with these solo episodes, I've made an accompanying worksheet for today's show that is going to help you integrate the content we cover here today. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, you will receive that worksheet in your inbox. Otherwise, you can head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash situationship, or you can click the link in the show notes and grab yourself that worksheet and uh, spend some time integrating what we're talking about today. Okay, so modern dating landscape. The modern dating landscape is really complicated. There are seismic shifts in when and how we create intimate partnerships that are fueled by a number of like big macro factors, including changing gender norms, changing economic factors, and shifting expectations of what people are wanting and needing within their intimate relationships. A full breakdown of the modern dating landscape would be an episode or seven in and of itself. But I'm just going to highlight three data points that really give us a glimpse into the sort of terrain of the current dating landscape. First data point, findings from the Pew Research Center in 2021 found that in the U.S., nearly 40% of men ages 25 to 29 live with older relatives, usually their parents. It's about a quarter of women. This is a significant demographic shift. In fact, between 1971 and 2021, the number of people in the U.S. who live in multi-generational family households has quadrupled. I did a whole episode of NPR's 1A about this, and so we've linked that episode in the show notes for you to have a listen to. Number two. Although there are cultural factors like religion, ethnicity, and geography that certainly shape the age of entry into marriage, what's crystal clear is that the overall age of entry into marriage is much older than it was even one generation ago. Like today, the average age of entry into marriage is in the low 30s, where a generation ago, certainly two generations ago, it was in the early 20s. It's a big, big, big age shift in just one generation. And number three, the proportion of the population in the U.S. that is married is lower than ever before. Between 1978 and 2018, the percentage or the share of adults between 18 years old and 34 years old who are married, that percentage plummeted from 59% to 29%. Again, between 1978 and 2018 which is, you know, in the grand scheme of things, not a ton of time. So this means that if you are, say, 35 years old or younger, this means that you are very likely to have or perhaps um, have already had more time between sexual maturity and saying I do than your parents and than your grandparents. And this means that you are more likely than your parents and grandparents to have more than one love story. And this means that you need and deserve a set of skills that can help you navigate beginnings and endings. And these are skills that your elders may not have needed in the same way. And they certainly are not skills that you picked up in your sex ed class or, you know, anywhere really along the way. So I'm I'm pretty passionate about helping people have what they need to navigate all of these shades of relational partnership from, you know, the first swipe to saying I do, because there's a lot of ambiguity, a lot of uncertainty, 
And there are skills that you can bring to bear that make it all just even a bit easier and more straightforward. You know, and in some cultures, dating is highly regimented, highly scripted, sometimes directed and managed by older relatives. But here in the U.S. in 2023, the path from first swipe to commitment is far from linear. There's so many possibilities. And with possibility comes the opportunity for ambiguity. So it's no surprise that we've seen a rise in relationship statuses that reflect and reinforce ambiguity. These ambiguous relationship statuses have many names. Sometimes we call them friends with benefits. Sometimes we call it talking. Sometimes we talk about fuck buddies. Sometimes we call them situationships as we are today. And sometimes one that I heard recently is zip code dating, meaning that it's not cheating if you hook up with someone else when you are in different zip codes. Okay, these ambiguous relationship statuses arise in a particular cultural context. Your grandma could not have had a situationship, not only because it wasn't culturally accepted, but because she likely could not reliably and safely control her fertility or get a credit card on her own. She needed marriage as a highly sturdy relationship status because it was her access point to the things that she needed. By the way, now that we are living here in the U.S. in a post-Roe world, post-Roe versus Wade world, women are losing the ability to reliably and safely control their fertility. And the impact of the recent Supreme Court decision in some ways you know, remains to be seen. However, we know, the thing we know for sure, is that there cannot be sexual liberation without reproductive freedom. And we know that people with uteruses do not have the same risk profile when it comes to dating that people without uteruses have. And how people make decisions about what works for them and what doesn't work for them is shaped by how steep the consequences and risks are. So my point here is that situationships are a relatively new relationship formation, which is part of why situationships can feel inherently unhealthy or inherently abnormal. Situationships can work, but they don't necessarily work. We're talking about situationships, and I want to be clear about this. When you are just beginning to get to know someone, let's just call that dating, I'll use that term to convey the act of spending time with another person romantically, whether you're getting coffee or drinks or dinner, you know, going over to each other's homes, whatever way it is that you're convening. Becomes a situationship when there is an overt or a covert, an accidental or intentional effort to avoid transitioning from casual dating to defining yourselves as a couple. It may be the case that one or both of you are thinking about having a DTR, <laughs> meaning a defining the relationship conversation, but it may be the case that neither of you is bringing it up or Maybe the case that one of you has asked, what are we doing? What is this? And the other person has shut that conversation down. Or it may be the case that the two of you have talked about it and you have decided together intentionally and purposefully that this is, in fact, a mutually agreed upon situationship. But built into the name and the form is a kind of impermanence. A situationship isn't a forever thing neither by design nor perhaps even by desire. 
embedded within the design is a sense that we are on our way to something else, either a clear commitment or an ending. Now I want to talk about situations where situationships work. If we live with these brains that crave certainty, that crave clarity, how could it be the case that anyone could ever thrive in something as ambiguous as a situationship? Well, people do. So let's look at why. I've got a few scenarios to offer, propose about why a situationship could work. They're going to be the following three. One, your current stage of development. Two, the current state of your wounds. Or three, relational constraints. One, your current state of development. If you are in a transitional or a temporary phase of life, a committed relationship may not feel like it makes sense and it may not feel feasible to you, but you may still be interested in getting to know people romantically and or sexually. Some examples of transitional phases in which a situationship might feel exactly right to a person could include the following. The months directly following a breakup with a serious partner, where this is really all you're interested in or have the capacity for. Perhaps the summer between college graduation and moving to a new city for your first job. Perhaps the fixed amount of time that you are spending in a specific location, either for graduate school or for a work assignment or for a travel adventure of some kind. A situationship in terms of stage development might also work because somebody is in a transitional phase in a bit more of like a philosophical sense. Maybe they're in a phase of their life where they're just feeling like they're more interested in connecting with lots of people and exploring their sexuality rather than in a stage of life where they're really primarily interested in committing to one person. This is especially common for younger people, but it certainly could happen at any age. And it may be that they're traveling the world and prioritizing moving around and being mobile over staying in one place and kind of grounding and tucking in with one partner. The second scenario is it may be that a situationship works based on the current state of your wounds. So if somebody is early in a journey of relational self-awareness, a situationship may feel like all they can handle or all they can ask for. And I want to be clear, I am not saying this in a condescending way at all. I'm just highlighting that our relationship dynamics can put a little bit of a spotlight on. They can be a little bit of an indicator that tells us something about how we feel about ourselves and what we believe to be true about ourselves. So a situationship may feel like it quote unquote works because it lines up with or aligns with beliefs that we have about ourselves and about relationships. If you're struggling on the inside, it may feel to you like it's all you can do just to tend to yourself, right? If you're doing deep inner healing work, it may be that you have so much bandwidth focused on that, that you don't have the capacity to truly tend to somebody else in a deep relational way, right? An intimate relationship has expectations for caretaking, for acts of service, for making and sticking to plans, for coordinating schedules, et cetera, et cetera. And that may feel in a moment of deep inner work, like it's more than you can or want to take on right now. So that may mean that a situationship feels like the right amount of relationship, so to speak. 
if you're moving through the world with unhealed stuff inside of you, you've not yet looked at your core wounds, you've not looked at family of origin dynamics, you've not looked at your patterns, your relational patterns. If that's the case, a situationship may feel like it's working for you because it may feel like it's it's the amount or the type of connection that you believe you deserve. Unpredictability, a lack of commitment, that may feel awfully familiar to you because of family of origin wounds, for example. So feeling like this situationship works may reflect your relationship patterns. It may reflect your attachment strategies. I've had lots and lots of clients and students who had a chapter with one or perhaps many situationships. And then through their relational self-awareness work, they've shifted their insides in such a way that ambiguity and inconsistency began to feel more disturbing than comfortable, more self-abandoning than familiar. And they've learned how to practice self-compassion, which allowed them to listen to that little quiet whisper of an inner voice that was saying, "Mm, this doesn't feel so good. I need more clarity. I need more consistency. I need more mutuality. So they can look back on their situationships, not as mistakes, not as things to feel ashamed of, but rather as reflections of what they believed about themselves at that particular moment in time. It also may be the case, the third scenario here is that there may be relational constraints. One might be a fear of loss. You might be drawn to a situationship because what you're trying desperately to do is avoid the messiness of a breakup. So understandable, so noble in a way, right? You don't want to hurt someone else and you don't want to get hurt. A situationship in that case is an attempted solution to a potentially painful problem. I will say that grief is inevitable. Emotions play by their own logic and your emotions are very likely not going to care about the fact that you've just been calling yourselves, you know, situationship partners. I don't know that emotions know how to scale themselves to fit with an ambiguous label. Emotions are the way they are and they deserve the time and space they need to be felt, honored, validated, experienced. So I think it's an attempt sometimes to say, it's just a situationship, therefore nobody can really get hurt. And I want to also just remind you that your emotions maybe are not going to care what you've called yourselves. Your emotions are going to know that you've you've had particular experiences that have signified something to you. Another relational constraint may be that perhaps the situationship feels like it's working because you are not certain that this is, quote, your person. So keeping them in this lane of situationship is an attempt to kind of buy some time. Uh, I want to remind you that ambivalence about a relationship and investment in a relationship live in a kind of recursive tension. You're likely going to be more ambivalent the more you have one foot in, one foot out. And the more you have one foot in, one foot out, the more you're going to feel ambivalent. And by the way, you know, I think that you know by now that this idea of like, I don't know if they're my person harkens back to some highly romanticized cultural mythology that there is just one person or just your person. 
you are going to need lots and lots of people in your life. You may only have one romantic partner, but you're certainly going to need, you already need uh, lots of people who can fill all of your different buckets in all kinds of different ways. Another relational constraint may be that the two of you have a difference that feels insurmountable. Perhaps there's a cultural difference or there's a values difference or there's a family systems difference. And so perhaps the situationship feels like it works because you don't want to let this person go, but you also can't figure out how to get over that hurdle, that that difference between the two of you that just feels, at least for now, insurmountable. Therefore, a situationship kind of feels like it functions as a middle ground while the two of you perhaps try to figure this thing out. All right, let's move on to talking about how to assess the quality of your situationship. If you know me by now, you know I'm not going to sit here and tell you what's right or wrong for you. I'm not going to give you prescriptive or cookie cutter advice about your life. I'm going to give you some tools, actually some questions that are designed to help you listen yourself into a deeper knowing about what's going to make you feel whole on the inside. And while I'm not sitting with you in real time, I'm just sitting there in your ears, I'm going to give you some questions to meditate on about your situationship, questions that are going to help you assess whether this is working for you and your partner or not. In fact, I'm going to give you nine relational self-awareness questions to help you figure out the degree to which it's working or not working. A reminder that all nine of these questions can be found in the accompanying worksheet that I developed for today's show. And that worksheet's going to help you integrate this content. So if you're a newsletter subscriber, you will receive the worksheet in your inbox. Otherwise, head to dralexandrasolomoncom slash situationship or click the link in the show notes. Okay, so when I go through each of these questions, I'm going to give you some possible responses that indicate that the relationship is working and some possible responses that would indicate the relationship is not working. So relational self-awareness question number one, what are our attachment styles or our attachment strategies? If the situationship is working, you might respond with this. We tend towards secure attachment strategies and therefore we have lots of ability to tolerate ambiguity. Or you might say, we tend towards avoidant attachment strategies, and therefore we're comfortable with less contact and lower expectations. Responses you might have to that question about attachment strategies that would indicate that the situationship is not working might be, we tend towards secure attachment, and therefore we're not so interested in low accountability relationships. Or... We tend towards anxious attachment strategies, and therefore we are not particularly comfortable with lots of ambiguity or lots of uncertainty. Relational self-awareness question number two, how do I feel before, during, and after I spend time with this person? Responses to that question that would indicate that the situationship is working might be, before I see this person, I look forward to seeing them. I'm excited. I'm, I have positive feelings of anticipation. During my time with this person, I am enjoying myself. I'm happy. I'm content. I'm engaged. After I spend time with this person, I feel glad that we met up. I miss them when we aren't together and I look forward to seeing them again. 
The way that you might respond to that question of before, during, after that would indicate to you that the situationship is not working might sound like this. Um, before I see them, I feel anxious and quite uneasy. During the time that I'm with them, I feel uncomfortable. I feel stressed much or all of the time that we're together. And after, I tend to feel kind of empty and I find myself ruminating about our time together. Question number three, where does this relationship fit within the overall architecture of my life? If your situationship is working, you might respond like this. I'm in a time of transition, so it's nice to have someone, but not to feel tied to someone. Or you might say this, I'm in a place right now where maximal pleasure, minimal obligation is suiting me very well. Thank you. Or I am currently living in the moment, so I don't really need a relationship that is progressing towards something. Responses to that question of where the relationship fits within the overall architecture of your life that would indicate that your situationship is not working would sound like this. Um, actually, I worry about what else I'm missing, or I worry that I'm wasting my time. Or I'm yearning for a deeper commitment and I would like to have something that progresses towards engagement or marriage, right? All those answers indicate that this situationship does not fit particularly well in the overall architecture of your life. Question four, where are my sexual boundaries? If your situationship is working, you might say something like this. I actually do not need or want sexual exclusivity. Knowing that they may very well be with other people right now, that feels kind of neutral to me. Or you might say, actually, I experience compersion. Compersion, by the way, is a term that is commonly used in the polyamorous community. And it's a term that was coined to be the antonym of jealousy. Compersion is a wholehearted happiness that you feel in the joyful experiences that the people that you care about are having with other people. For more on compersion, we've shared uh, a really interesting article in the show notes for you. If your situationship is working and you're reflecting on your sexual boundaries, you might also say something like, I am able to protect my sexual health. That's really essential to a situationship working is feeling like you are rock solidly able to protect your sexual health. You would say that you feel respected and respectful, and you would say that you really enjoy the sexual experiences that you're having with your situationship partner. And you'd be able to say pretty confidently that they're also enjoying themselves. Responses that do, in fact, indicate that your situationship is not working would be something like this. Well, I definitely feel like I need or I want sexual exclusivity but I don't feel able to ask for it. Or I don't feel good about them being with other people, but I don't feel authorized to ask for it to be any other way. Or if you say, I'm not protecting my sexual health, that response indicates that your situationship is not working for your life. Or if you said something like, I don't feel respected and or I don't feel like I'm behaving in ways that are particularly respectful if I'm being honest with myself. Or you might say, the sex that we have is not particularly rewarding, but I am tolerating it for some reason. Question five, 
what needs of mine are being met within this situationship? So for this one, responses that would indicate that your situationship is working might sound like this. Well, the needs of mine that are being met in my situationship are my need for independence, my need for freedom, my need for agility, for flexibility, my need for space and downtime, my need for liberation from obligations of any kind, my need for adventure, for novelty, my need for unpredictability. The response to the question about what needs are being met in the situationship that would indicate that your situationship is not working might sound like this. Um, my needs are largely not being met. I have a need for security that isn't being met. I have a need for safety that isn't being met. I have a need for predictability that is not being met. I have a need for commitment that's not being met. And I have a need for assurance or prioritization that's not being met. Number six, when I have a concern, a question, or a need, what's it like for me to bring it up to my situationship partner? If your situationship is working for you, you might respond like this. Mm, when I have to bring up a concern or a question, I feel calm or reasonably calm because this person is able to validate my concerns, even if they don't agree with my concerns. Or you might say something like this. I feel entitled in a good way, like entitled, authorized to express what is going on inside of me. Responses that would indicate that your situationship is not working for you would be like this. Uh, I, I don't bring up my concerns. I don't feel able to bring up my concerns. Or you might say something like, I feel very tense bringing up my concerns because this person reacts by rolling their eyes, by shutting down, or by reminding me that we are low drama. Right? Those responses indicate that your situationship is not working very well for your life. Question seven, to what degree are our motivations aligned? If your situationship is working for you, you might respond by saying something like this. We are totally or mostly on the same page in terms of what each of us is wanting, needing, and available for. It's a, it's a shared agenda. If your situationship is not working for you, the way that you might respond to that question is, I think that there is a mixed agenda scenario going on here. I'm participating in a situationship for now in the hopes that it will lead to a quote, real relationship down the road. Or you might say that we're mixed agenda because I'm really comfortable with this casual, no label kind of a thing. But if I'm really being honest with myself, I know darn well that they want something more that I'm just kind of blocking access to. So we are mixed agenda in that way. Question eight, in what ways do I feel cared for? Responses that you would give to that question that indicate that your situationship is working would sound like this. Uh, I feel cared for because this person checks in with me about how I'm feeling and or they are open to me bringing up a check-in. This person asks me questions about my life and this person demonstrates interest in who I am as a person outside of our, you know, moments together. Responses that you would give to that question that would indicate to you that your situationship is not working very well 
would sound like this. So in what ways do I feel cared for? I don't know. I can't really think of any. Mm, I think, if I'm being honest, that I might be confusing this person's attraction towards me with this person caring for me. I think I might be kind of confusing those two things. Okay, last one. Question nine. Where do I quote unquote live inside of this person's mind or heart? Where do I live inside of this person's mind or heart? Responses you'd give to that question that indicate to you that your situationship is working sound like this. Oh, I, I matter to this person. Where I live inside of them is I matter. I, I matter to them. Uh, this person factors me in even though we are casual. Like I definitely am part of this person's equation. I'm factored in. I am valued. I live inside of this person's mind and heart. Responses that you would give to that question that would indicate to you that your situationship is by contrast not working very well would be a response like this. I don't know. I don't know where I live inside of this person. Or I don't feel important. I don't feel special. I don't feel respected. Okay. I hope that those felt helpful and clarifying. So yeah, I mean, I think the bottom line is that the key variables we're looking for here are communication and respect. Communication is the hallmark of any relationship, no matter how casual, how fleeting. Do you feel comfortable setting and bringing up the terms of engagement with this person? Can you envision yourself letting them know when you're not comfortable with something? Would you feel safe enough to share a vulnerable emotion with them or romantic feelings towards them if those began to develop for you? And now what's the quality of the sexual communication between the two of you? Just because something's casual doesn't mean it can't have great communication. If your situationship is full of guessing games, mixed agendas, anxiety-provoking ambiguity for one of you or for both of you, it's probably not going to pass our communication test. And then respect. Is there respect for each of your time and each of your space? Does this person respect the boundaries of the relationship and treat you as a full human being? Do you do the same for them? Or do one or both of you assume that the other one's going to just kind of appear and hang out whenever they're in town, whenever they're home for the night, whenever they get home from a night of going out? In other words, does the connection feel relational or does it feel transactional? Do you treat each other with kindness and respect? Even if the situationship is casual and does not involve a deeper emotional connection or deeper emotional conversations, basic respect and kindness, I want those to be your standard for any romantic and sexual connection. Those are, in fact, the standard for pretty much all of our interactions with all of the humans in all of the contexts. So where do we go from here? I want to talk a little bit about what's next. I wrote a post on Instagram a while back that read, insight without behavior change lacks agency. Behavior change without insight lacks anchoring. This episode has largely been an insight expander. And I want you to use your insights to shift your behavior. If exploring those nine questions illuminated for you that your situationship is in fact working, then 
as my mom says, have at it. (laughs) Enjoy. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. If exploring these questions illuminated to you that your situationship is not working for you or is no longer working for you, then I hope this episode will be the nudge that you need to validate those feelings for yourself and take some action, some action to either request clear definition or to step away from the status quo. If exploring these questions illuminates that your situationship is working fine for you, but it is not working for the other person, then I hope this show will be the motivation you need to do the gracious thing and shut it down. As my husband Todd says, it is so challenging when the hard thing and the right thing are the same thing. And this may very well be one of those times. If you're crystal clear or it becomes clear to you after listening to this, that the two of you are mixed agenda, you're fine. But if you get honest with yourself, you know darn well that they aren't fine. Then can that be the motivation you need to do the hard thing and release? Let them go. Let them go so they can find somebody who wants something deeper and so that you can be liberated to have a situation, 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 situationship, relationship where you feel and you know that there's alignment, that both of you are on board with what you're doing at this point in time. So I want to remind you before I let you go that ending a situationship is ending a relationship. Was it informal? Yes. Was it undefined? Yes. But whatever feelings you have, if and when it ends, those feelings are real. So keep an eye out for ways that you may be at risk of invalidating yourself in the face of your grief, if and when your situationship ends. Invalidation sounds like this. Ugh, it shouldn't hurt this bad. We were never a couple. This should not be such a big deal for me. I'm overreacting to this ending. Let yourself feel what you feel at the exact length, width, and depth at which you feel it. That's going to actually help you heal and move forward more quickly and with more integrity than if you minimize your emotions. As us therapists love to say, the way out is through. And by the way, I'm saying I don't want you to minimize your loss. I also don't want anyone in your realm, in your life, to minimize your loss by saying some knuckleheaded thing to you, like, how can you be heartbroken? It was just a situationship. That one drives me crazy. You deserve to have the validation you need for a relationship ending, no matter what, how formal or informal the relationship was. Hurt is hurt. Stay tuned also for more on relationship endings in future episodes of Reimagining Love. I'm going to wrap us up for today. I want to thank you for joining me for this exploration of how we can bring relational self-awareness to situationships, to these liminal relationship statuses that have sexual intimacy and regular contact, but which don't have commitment or a couple-based label. These relationships are real and they're common. You deserve to have the tools and insights you need to make thoughtful and mindful and intentional choices that care for you and that care for the other person. So final reminder that you can grab your accompanying worksheet for this episode and that that worksheet will help you 
take this content in a bit more. If you're a newsletter subscriber, you will get the worksheet in your inbox. Otherwise, you can just head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash situationship or click the link in the show notes. Until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University.